I'm Garrick, and the focus of today's episode is how to do apologetics. But this may not be the apologetics method discussion that you're looking for. I'm Timothy, and along the way, Garrick and I will be looking at a brand new book from Josh Chatreau entitled Telling a Better Story that teaches you how to do apologetics inside out. If you're interested in other works by Josh Chatreau, we recommend two more of his books, Truth Matters and Truth in a Culture of Doubt from B&H Academic. That's Truth Matters and Truth in a Culture of Doubt, published by our friends at B&H Academic. To take a look at these and many other excellent books, go to bhacademic.com. Welcome to Three Chords and the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. I'm Timothy Paul Jones. In each episode of this podcast, my friend Garrick Bailey and I tackle a topic that makes it difficult to trust the truth of the Christian faith. Along the way, we talk about music, movies, theology, and culture. To support this podcast and to receive Three Chords and the Truth merchandise, go to patreon.com slash three chords and the truth. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. Thank you so much for joining us today on Three Chords in the Truth, where we defend the faith, do justice, and dig for truth in rock and roll. Well, once in a while, I get an email or a message from somebody who listens to Three Chords in the Truth, and the question runs something like this. It's, what is your view of apologetics methods? What is the apologetics method you prefer? What do you think about the different apologetics methods? And we actually don't talk a lot about apologetics methods on Three Chords in the Truth, and that's mostly because that's not really what we are mostly interested in, and yet it really does matter. The apologetics methods that we use actually matter, and we're often thinking in terms of those even if we don't explicitly say it. And at the same time, we've actually been wanting to talk about a book by our friend Josh Shatro, and the name of that book is Telling a Better Story. And so in this episode, we're not going to do this like a normal three Chords in the Truth episode. We're actually just going to spend the whole time talking about apologetics methods and this book, Telling a Better Story. So that's what we're going to be doing today. Yeah, we're going to be having a conversation, which oddly enough, if you asked us about our apologetic method, that's really what our answer would be. We just kind of have conversations. And in a sense, that is what Josh Chatreau has been trying to get people on board with for the last few years. And that's how Josh opens his book. He opens his book with an interesting illustration of a student essentially coming to him and asking him for the silver bullet, the knockout punch, the number one, the best apologetic argument that one could make to really convince a non-believer of the truth of Christianity. I don't think there's two things that we really want to avoid in apologetics, and I think this is why what Josh does is interesting and is appealing to us. Because on the one hand, there are people on the one side who they get really, really 
focused on one particular method, whether that's presuppositional or classical, and they are all about that one method. And that's a problem for reasons that we'll talk about as things unfold in our discussion today. On the other hand, there are people who don't think about methods at all, and they may say, I just kind of mix different methods, but really, they're just doing things in a sloppy way. They're just kind of grasping for things all the time in apologetics and aren't thinking in any methodical way about how to do apologetics. Both of those are things we want to avoid in one case because we want to be more focused on the gospel than on any particular method. We want to be focused on people and conversations, not on apologetics methods. So we want to avoid that real attitude of this is one method, this is the only method, this is the silver bullet method. We want to avoid that. On the other hand, we want to avoid just kind of sloppily wandering through apologetics because there really are some methodical issues that matter, and we want to be able to think in terms of that. That's why we like Josh's book. That's kind of what we're trying to do. We're trying to steer between those. And so to help us do that, we're going to talk first today just about three primary approaches to apologetics. Before we even get to Josh's book, we're going to look at each one of these. Now, these aren't the only approaches to apologetics, but they're the three primary ones. And the first of these is classical apologetics. And with each one of these, we're going to tell you about a song that kind of (laughs) expresses that. And so for classical apologetics, the song that we've chosen is, Do You Want to Build a Snowman? (laughs) Everyone get that in your head now. I build a snowman. Come on, let's go and play. I never see you anymore. Come out the door. It's like you've gone away. Now, here's the reason that song makes sense for classical apologetics, because the idea of classical apologetics is that you have some sort of a firm foundation and you build on it. Just like with a snowman, you have something that is very basic, the earth itself you start with, and then you have the large snowball, then something slightly smaller, then something slightly smaller. You're building on a foundation. That's how you do classical apologetics. And so you want to build a snowman. No man, that's a classical apologetics song. Yeah. If classical apologetics were a toy, it would be Lincoln Logs. It is a bottom-up or a building block constructional method. It is a two-step approach to apologetics where you start with an appeal to arguments from nature and reason to demonstrate the rationality of God's existence. So you start with that. You start with something very basic. You start with appeals to arguments from nature and reason to show that God exists. And then you build on that by working from special revelation, or you start talking about the truths that are accessible not through nature and reason, but only because of God's special revelation. That is the things that are distinctly true of the Christian faith and God's revealing of those things through his spirit, through scripture, through ultimately Jesus Christ. That's classical apologetics. A two-step, you start beginning with these natural, reasonable arguments, and then you build on those the truths that are distinct of Christianity. Timothy, I think it, it might be helpful very briefly Why is this approach preferable to some people? What is appealing about the classical apologetics approach to folks? 
Well, I think what's appealing just at a general level about classical apologetics is the fact that you're starting with something we can all agree on, at least in theory. You're starting with something we can all agree on. That is to say, you're starting with something about the orderliness of creation, for example. And you might talk about the argument from design or the teleological argument based on the orderliness of creation. You might talk about the fact that everything, there's cause and effect in the world, and you start with the cosmological argument that tries to establish the existence of God through this idea of cause and effect, of necessary causes and effects and all of those things. So the idea is that you can find some common ground that both you and the unbeliever can agree on. That's what's appealing about classical apologetics. Yeah, essentially you're trying to get someone to nod their head and say, yeah, yeah, I'm with you there. And then you tend to make this second move, which you've talked about, which is to, okay, now let me provide what I believe is the best explanation for this thing that we agree on. And you can find classical apologists and classical apologetics all the way through church history to some degree. You can find, for example, Aristides, Aristides of Athens. He argues first, he establishes that there is a God, and he does this on the basis of what he observes of creation, that he moves to the truthfulness of special revelation. But really, the classical apologist par excellence is Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages, and he really articulates this really clearly in the Middle Ages, in particularly a book called Summa Contra Gentiles, or this treatise against the Gentiles, basically articulating to those who don't believe the reasons for Christian faith. And so here's what Aquinas says. He says, there exists a twofold truth. So he's getting ready to spell out for us these two steps of classical apologetics. He says, there exists a twofold truth concerning the divine being, one to which the inquiry of reason can reach, the other which surpasses the whole ability of human reason. So what he's saying there is, look, there's something you can get to just on the basis of human reason. That's these things about the orderliness of creation, about the orderliness of the world and cause and effect, these first initial arguments that draw from nature and reason. You can get to there. And then he says, but beyond that, there's things that surpass the whole ability of human reason. There are some truths, he says, which the natural reason is able to reach, such as that God exists and that he is one. And then Aquinas goes on to say, look, there's some things such as the Trinity, such as Jesus Christ in flesh that you can't reach on the basis of your reason alone. And so that's the idea, this two-step apologetic. Now, he's not saying, as some people falsely accuse Aquinas of, he's not saying that basically human reason is autonomous when it comes to the first things of the existence of God, that human reason doesn't need God at all in those. In fact, Aquinas says later, he says, the divine mercy instructs us to hold by faith even those truths that human reason is able to investigate. So what he's saying there is, look, there is faith involved even in these truths we're able to investigate. God and his grace and his mercy are involved even in those. It's not autonomous human reason. God and his mercy and grace is involved even in those things that your human reason is able to reach. But he does have this clear two-step method of classical apologetics in which you start with arguments 
from nature and reason to establish that God exists, arguments like the cosmological and the teleological arguments, and then you move from there to things that human reason can't attain, that is, those things that only can be known through special revelation. Do you want to build a snowman? So that's the first view, the first perspective, the first method of apologetics that we'll talk about. The second one is evidentialism. So we've got classical apologetics, then evidential apologetics. And the theme song for evidential apologetics that I've chosen is by Kenny Loggins. Yes, that same (laughs) Kenny Loggins, who in that wonderful year of 1986 produced much of the soundtrack for Top Gun. He also produced soundtrack music in 1987, which looking at the movies from 1987, it was a pretty bad selection of movies. This song, Meet Me Halfway by Kenny Loggins, it was with the movie Over the Top, which oh. I had forgotten that movie. How could you forget that movie? Timothy, I awful. cannot tell you the number of times I watched that movie as a child. It I mean, a truly terrible movie. <laughs> it is a terrible movie, and at the same time, there are just some very uh, attractive narrative plots to it for a, a young boy, <laughs> which I was back in the day. So. And, So, just to spare our listening audience Mm -hmm. having to even look up the movie over the top, let's spare them that. Somebody had an idea of, let's do a sports movie. Let's do a sports movie like Rocky. Let's even get the star of Rocky to star in this movie, but let's make it about arm wrestling. That's right. (laughs) It is a sports movie about arm wrestling. It's the dark, seedy reality behind the whole, apparently behind the whole trucking industry that all semi-truck drivers apparently are arm wrestlers, but that it comes to a whole nother level where there's like a professional league and a competition. And of course, the prize for that is a new rig and Sylvester Stallone, in the end, he takes it, of course, because it's sly. And yeah, I would highly recommend that you go watch it. I'm going to throw that out there. I would highly recommend you never watch it. <laughs> it's not as good as Iron Eagle, but I still enjoyed it a lot as a kid. So, But either way, the high point of, of Over the Top, which was definitely Over the Top, the high point of it, of this very low movie, so the high point of the lows at that point is the song Meet Me Halfway by Kenny Loggins. And this song, I use it for evidential apologetics because basically That's what evidential apologetics is. It's not saying there's some absolute ground that we can meet on that's a common ground of nature and reason. It's basically saying in evidential apologetics, finding a starting point on which the Christian and the non-Christian can both agree. It's not saying that is accessible through completely natural reason or anything like that. It's just saying, could we start at this point and agree on 
this, whatever it may be. And so in evidential apologetics, it's going to be different from situation to situation. It's a more conversational apologetic. For one person, that common ground on which they start, that bit of evidence on which they start might be something to do with the accounts of the resurrection of Jesus, or it might be something to do with the creation of the world. That's different approaches to evidential apologetics. When I'm leaning more heavily in evidential apologetics, I'm going to try to engage with the unbeliever and say, look, could we just agree that the Gospels are documents that come from ancient history? Can we just agree on this? Let's just agree on this idea that the Gospels are texts from ancient history. When I'm leaning in an evidential mode, that's what I'm going to try to do, is to say, could we just agree on that? Because even the unbeliever will agree with me that the Gospels are ancient documents. They may not think they're true. They may not think they're divinely inspired, certainly don't think they're divinely inspired, but they can at least agree these are documents from ancient history. And what I'm going to try to do at that point is to say, okay, then let's look at them in the same way we would look at any other text from ancient history. And let's try to figure out whether they're true, whether they're reliable or not on that basis. And I'm going to try to build a case for Christian faith on this basis of let's look at them like we would look at other documents from ancient history. So I'm going to try to meet that person halfway. I'm going to say, all right, I believe this about these documents. Okay, I know you don't believe this, but can we at least meet halfway and come together with something that we both agree on about these particular texts? Yeah, and I think building the case is kind of the key verbiage here. The first apologetics book that I ever remember reading was Lee Strobel's Case for Christ. And I was absolutely blown away by this book because of Lee's journalistic background and and how he came at exactly what he says, building a case for the reliability of the Gospels, for the existence of Jesus. And he argued it so well in such a precise fashion as if he were in a court of law. That's why building the case rather than the building blocks, if you would, is really the perfect illustration for what a person leaning into an evidential apologetics is really trying to do. Yeah, and when we're talking about evidential apologetics, that's a whole lot of popular apologetics. Going all the way back to C.S. Lewis and before, but just thinking in terms of modern apologists, C.S. Lewis, primarily an evidential apologist. You've got Josh McDowell. That's primarily what he was doing. Lee Strobel, J. Warner Wallace, who's been on our program with us in the past season. That's what he does as well. That's what a lot of apologetics that we see at a popular level is evidential apologetics at some level. It's saying, meet me halfway. Let's find this point at which we can both agree on something, and then let's work together from there. So basically what evidential apologetics does is it seeks a starting point on which the Christian and the non-Christian can agree, and then works from that to make a historical argument for the trustworthiness of Scripture, often, not always, but often, with some sort of a focus on the resurrection of Jesus. got evidentialism, we've talked about already, and we've got classical apologetics. Now let's shift gears into 
presuppositional apologetics. And that one's a tough one to understand. And so we're going to give you a great song to go with presuppositional <laughs> Wait, apologetics. Great, great. Uh, I mean, <laughs> a truly great song by a truly awful band. And it's it's really not a great song <laughs> either. It is to music what over the top is to movies. And <laughs> that song is something that I already know by the Backstreet Boys. So, something that I already know for presuppositionalism, here's why I think it fits with that. Because the idea in presuppositionalism is that the unbeliever actually already knows, even if they're not aware of it, the truth of God. They already know this. They are already aware of the truth of God. And in every thought we have, we exemplify the truth of God in every thought we have. And the very fact that we are able to think at all is grounded in, is rooted in the reality of God. And so we are always operating with something that we already know. We are always in that mode, even if somebody is an unbeliever. And so, of course, the person who is most associated with presuppositionalism is a man named Cornelius Van Til. And I will tell you, having over the past two years or so read about 3,000 pages of Van Til, I don't necessarily recommend you do that. Many of them twice. Many of those pages more than once. Oh, definitely, <laughs> because Van Til is difficult to understand. I came out of that reading of Van Til, and I decided a couple of years ago I was going to do this, just do a deep dive into this and read everything apologetics-related that Van Til ever wrote. And I plunged into that and read this, and I came out simultaneously appreciating Van Til more at the end of all this reading, and yet also disagreeing with him more in some areas, but agreeing with him in areas I didn't think I was going to agree with him. Presuppositional apologetics, also called by some others, covenantal apologetics, whatnot, it's kind of made a, well, at least in the literature, it has made a, a resurgence in the last decade or so, maybe less than that, maybe five, six years. So, what is at the heart of when someone who holds to a presuppositional apologetic sits down at a coffee shop to speak about the things of God with someone who is not of the faith, what is their goal? What is their purpose? Where do they want to start? What's at the heart of this apologetic? Well, I would identify three different things as being really characteristic of presuppositionalism. Now, I'm not saying these are the three most important or most prominent things in presuppositionalism, but they are the three most distinct things about presuppositionalism. And the number one thing that I think is important to understand is that from a presuppositional perspective, no rational thought is possible unless Christian theism is true. No rational thought is possible unless Christian theism is true. If you go down to the root of this in Cornelius Van Til and his work on epistemology, what you find out is that for Cornelius Van Til, the ontological trinity is the only solution of the problem of the one and the many. Now, without us getting too deeply into that, this is a perennial 
philosophical problem, which is that how can there be actually many different things in the world that are separate from one another, and yet somehow they are all they are all connected. They are all one thing, this perennial problem of the one and the many. And so according to Van Til, the only possible solution for that is the ontological trinity, which is, if you think about it, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, the, the ontological trinity, if you think about that, if that's true, then the rest of Christian theism has to be true. The rest of it is. So it all kind of stands or falls together at this point. Okay, so what you're saying, clarifying thought for us normal folks out there, if Christian theism isn't true, which means then the Trinity, the triune view of God is is untrue, then nothing else actually really makes sense, right? That there is then no reasonable answer to this problem of the one and the many that you have that you have presented. Is that that's it's what exactly. And so that's there's no rational thought possible. In other words, there's no rational predication. That is to say you can't describe anything reasonably. You can't know any fact reasonably. All our knowledge and all of our capacity to know and all of our capacity to express what we know. All of it, according to Van Til, depends on the ontological trinity because that is the solution to the philosophical problems of communication, of knowledge, of all of that. That's why Van Til can say, and did say, these words here. He said, anti-theism presupposes theism. Unless you believe in God, you can logically believe in nothing else. Arguing about God's existence is like arguing about air. You affirm that air exists and I that it does not, but as we debate the point, we are both breathing air all the time. Now, what he's trying to express in that is that when somebody is arguing, they're using logical categories and logical predications and statements and all of that, that all, whether they know it or not, whether they believe it or not, all of those presuppose the existence of a triune God. That is crucial to understanding presuppositionalism. If we don't get that, we can't understand any other aspect of presuppositionalism. So this foundational thought, number one, of presuppositionalism, no rational thought is possible unless Christian theism is true. The second aspect of presuppositionalism that we have to understand just follows directly from this is that every fact and rational thought, therefore, demonstrates Christian theism. In other words, any fact that you know as true, somehow it actually requires Christian theism to be true. And that's a much simpler one that flows from this other one that leads us to a third, I think, distinguishing feature of presuppositionalism. And it is this one. And this, again, I think we can question this, but I'm trying to fairly represent presuppositionalism. And it's that every human being knows that the God of the Bible exists, and whenever people hear the gospel or the scriptures, they know that those things are true, even the unbeliever. So, in other words, from a presuppositionalist perspective, when the unbeliever hears the gospel, when the unbeliever reads and hears the scriptures, that unbeliever knows that those things are true because they know that their worldview, their facts that they do know are impossible to be true apart from this God that's being presented in the gospel and the scriptures. And so their denial of the truth of these things is actually a suppression of those truths. 
from a presuppositional perspective, you can't seek a neutral point in reason or in nature. There is no neutral point. You have to simply try to demonstrate that the facts that the unbeliever knows or thinks that she or he knows, those facts that are true are only possible to be true if the God of the Bible and the God who has presented himself in Jesus, if that God is true. That's the only way that anything can possibly be true or be known as true. What you see in Josh's work is he doesn't deny any of these methods. And he doesn't kind of in a blasé manner, kind of as as what you alluded to, Timothy, he doesn't just, yeah, hey, I just start a conversation and wherever it goes, it goes. And these various methods, they just kind of happen depending on the situation. That's not what he's about at all. In fact, he's very intentional about the story that he wants to tell. But it involves hearing a story first, figuring out what a person's story is and and the story that they have, the narrative they have of themselves and the world and all of life's big questions. And as you read his book, I think one of the most, again, one of the most attractive things about about the material, the books that Josh is writing right now is, is that you actually see all of these in some sense. You see all of these methods shine through in different ways. And that's, I think, why I enjoyed this book so much. And what's key for Josh in this book is what he calls inside-out apologetics. That is his method, and it is a clear and consistent method. It really is. There is a method he's he's operating from and with called inside-out apologetics. Now, the way he defines that, or at least describes it, is it's entering a person's social imagination and engaging their ideas from within. So, in other words, we're asking What can we affirm in the story or in the storyline of a person that they're describing, that they use the narrative that they use to make sense of their lives? What can we affirm in their story and what must be challenged in their story? Where does their story lead? Is it consistent or inconsistent? And so, in essence, what we're doing in this inside-out apologetics is we're connecting their inside story, okay, to an outside story. We're saying basically the story that you're telling yourself, the story by which you're living your life, the narrative that you're using to make sense of your life, we want to connect that to the story of God in Christ and to show that things like beauty and yearning, and death, and morality, and justice, all these things like that that you have in your story, those actually make the best sense or perhaps only make sense in light of the story, the narrative of God in Christ. Yeah, and he does, when he lays out what he calls, well, his method, when he lays out inside-out apologetics and he gives you, you know, the diagrams as books have to and whatnot, he does contrast it kind of directly with a building block apologetics method, not specifically saying, again, hey, classical, evidential, all of these things, they don't, we need to throw them out. That's not what he's saying. He's simply saying that one of the weaknesses of having a method and kind of sticking with this particular method or even this particular topic that you build all of your apologetics on is that it has a static starting point. 
that it necessarily requires you to successfully build this foundation before you can begin moving on, including before you can move on to the gospel. Whereas in the inside out approach, you're finding out someone's story and you're always looking for where the gospel story overlaps with the story that they have bought into. And you're, you're always trying to weave the story of Christianity, the gospel story, into the conversations that you're having, the questions that you're asking, the, the reimagining, which is something specific that he talks about, the reimagining of the story of the person you're talking to. And that's the way in which what Josh is doing actually simultaneously is congruent with certain types and certain aspects of presuppositionalism and yet critiques certain aspects of presuppositionalism. And I think this is helpful for us to think about. And what he is in essence doing is doing at a narrative level what Cornelius Van Til, I think, was trying to do at a logical, metaphysical, epistemological level. I think he's that's what he's doing. Sometimes it strikes me that I would, if I were to call Josh's work something other than inside out, I would call it narrative presuppositionalism. Now, I don't want to put that tag on it because I don't want to load down what he's doing with all the baggage that goes with the word presuppositionalism, and I, and I don't want to, but there is a sense in which what he's doing is narrative presuppositionalism. Here's what I mean, is that remember what Cornelius Van Til was trying to do in presuppositionalism is show you can't have a rational thought apart from Christian theism being true, and he argues that everything has to depend on the ontological trinity being true, even your capacity to think and your capacity to reason, all those things. Now, I actually don't think Van Til was correct at that point. I don't think that is correct on that. But there is a truth in there that Josh, I think, helpfully picks up on. And that is that Christian theism makes the best and the most sense out of our capacities to think and the ways in which we think. But what Josh does, instead of trying to build it on this rational, logical basis and that you can't think, basically, apart from Christian theism being true, instead of doing that, what Josh does is that Christian theism makes the best, indeed, perhaps the only sense of the stories and the narratives, the way we make sense of our lives. And I think what Josh gets so right in that is we are not primarily thinking beings. We are not primarily just beings who are brains in rationalizing and articulating these rational ideas, but we are primarily, as human beings, narrative beings. And that's where he has a much keener sense of the nature of humanity than Van Til did. Van Til approaches it as if we are primarily rational beings, primarily thinking beings. But the truth is human beings are not primarily rational beings. We are primarily storying beings. We are primarily beings that are shaped by narrative and by story. And that's what Josh gets in telling a better story that is far superior. But as I said, it, there are similarities between it and presuppositionalism, because in essence, he's saying not that you can't think rationally apart from the, the God of Scripture, but rather that the stories you tell and the values you have in those stories don't really work apart from the type of God that is described 
in the Bible. They don't work apart from that. And the way I read it, which is similar, but if I were trying to come up with a different term, I, I don't think that I would put presuppositionalism in there, and not just because of the baggage, but because I think kind of what you said, Timothy, where it's not just at this logical level, but in a sense, Josh is saying that the story, the gospel story, the Christian God is the only thing that makes sense or makes the best sense of all things. And I think because this is kind of the move that Josh makes, that it also includes more parallels also with evidentialism in a sense, so that I think that there's enough of a balance there that I that I wouldn't want to throw presuppositionalism in whatever alternative, you know, alternative name we're coming up with. None of this matters. The only reason this matters is because when this comes out, I'm totally going to tag Josh and see who he thinks is right. I don't want to connect it to presuppositionalism except to say that I think he actually successfully does what Van Til unsuccessfully tries. I really do think he's successfully doing that. He is succeeding at showing that the best sense of who we are and the only sense of who we are is made by the, the God of Scripture. Josh is drawing just a lot from somebody that we have all been shaped by as well, which is James K.A. Smith in his books, such as Desiring the Kingdom and Others, which understands that we are not primarily beings who just think and rationalize, but we are primarily beings who love and that belief is bound up in love. So it's it's about love, which brings us to the song that I think fits best with what Josh is doing, which is Tina Turner's What's Love Got to Do With It, which he actually does reference in a subheading in one of the chapters of the book. He does Tina Turner's What's Love Got to Do With It, and the truth is, for his method, love has everything to do with it, because we are primarily beings who love and Love is part of the framework within which we tell our stories and give stories and narrative meaning. It's about love and belief and story. That's primarily what we're about is love and storying narratives, not primarily just rational thinking beings. Yeah. Just to circle back, I completely take your point and see your reasoning and think it yes it would be helpful to hand Josh's book to presuppositionalists that we know and and say hey we think this is a really helpful I don't know if corrective is the right word but but this is the best way to flesh out the heart of what you have at presuppositionalism there's a name for it there's a phrase that but whatever the you do it for me. Oh, what's love got to do? Got to do it. What's love? Could we describe Scripture's apologetic, or or much of Scripture's apologetic? I don't want to say that Scripture has one apologetic, but could we describe Scripture's apologetic as, in many cases, seeking to 
out narrative, the rival stories that the authors of Scripture are aware of and that are out there and that they've been led by the Spirit to essentially what Scripture is, is, is telling the best story, the, the one true story that makes sense of so many of the other stories that exist. I actually think that we can find biblically so many examples of how Scripture is an outmaneuvering the narrative of the world, out-narrativing the world's narrative. That's what in Genesis chapters 1 through 3, that's what we see is, and some people are uncomfortable with this, but it's powerful that Scripture itself in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, and Genesis 1 in particular, but it plays out in chapters 2 and 3 as well, is in essence providing an alternative to the myths of creation that are found in the world around them. In other words, that Moses, when he writes this, he has in his mind, one of the things that he has in his mind, that by God's Spirit's inspiration as he's writing this, are the the creation myths of the world around him, and he is providing an alternative narrative to those to show those, and in some sense, almost at times, to either mock or critique those in the way he writes it. So I think Scripture begins with an apologetic against the creation myths of the world around them, in which God inspires Moses to write this in a way that critiques those stories. And we see that all the way through. You see it in Acts, for example, when Paul is at Mars Hill, he is drawing from their cultural poetry and drawing from those from people that were in their world. And yet at the same time, he's critiquing them and belittling sometimes even the false philosophies of the world around them. Jesus challenged and subversively fulfilled the false stories, not mainly through abstract statements or logical syllogisms, but by reorienting his listeners to the true kingdom through metaphors, narrative, parables. I think the real contribution of this book is, if I could sum it up in one sentence, is that Christianity is the only satisfying explanation for the stories we live by and live for. That's how I'd summarize the book. Christianity is the only satisfying explanation for the stories we live by and the stories we live for. And there's there's one point in the book, and he does a great job in this, when he talks about how Salman Rushdie, the novelist who's a, an atheist, he admits that there are plot holes in this secular narrative that religion can fill. And Josh uses that as a point to point out this truth that I think is central to the book is that Christianity is the only satisfying explanation for the stories we live by and the stories we live for. And he articulates then three basic stories that people today are living by. One of them he calls pessimistic secularity, that there's no ultimate significance. We're all just cosmic accidents. He says also there's some that live by optimistic secularity, which is, look, we've progressed to a point at which we don't need myth or religion or any of those old things, this optimistic secularity. And then there's one that he describes as pluralistic, moral, therapeutic spirituality that, yes, there's a God and he's here to make my life better. It's all about me. And he points out how all of these stories are ultimately not 
satisfying stories, but that Christianity is the only satisfying explanation for the stories we live by and live for. It's the only way to make sense of it, and therefore we engage with people and guide them toward understanding that Christianity is true because we are narrative beings. And he quotes from a scholar named Ursula Le Guin, and the the quote he, he draws from this scholar is just excellent. And it's it's this, that there have been great societies that did not use the wheel, but there have been no societies that did not tell stories. And that's this critique, really, of modernity and of scientific progress and all of that. In that narrative, it's all about invention and technology and things like that. But what is pointed out here is, look, there have been great societies that didn't even use the wheel, but there's never been a society, great or small, that didn't tell stories, that we are ultimately beings shaped not by technology, not simply by ideas, but we are beings shaped by stories. Thank you for joining us today on Three Chords in the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. And thank you so much to B&H Academic for their sponsorship. Go to bhacademic.com to find more theology and more apologetics resources. And also, if you're interested in studying apologetics with me, I want to invite you to take a look at the apologetics programs at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Whether you're thinking about a master's degree or a doctoral degree on campus or online, I would be so glad to have you as a guest at our our next preview day. To register, go to sbts.edu slash visit. And also, if you're interested in a podcast that's focused on ministry in urban contexts, go to urban.sbts.edu. That's urban.sbts.edu to listen to the Urban Ministry Podcast. I'm Dr. Timothy Paul Jones, and I'm already looking forward to joining you next time on Three Chords in the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. And at the same time, we've been wanting to talk about a particular book that we really like by our friend Josh Shatra. Uh, oh, man, how did I mess that yeah, up? Anyway, <laughs> I, know, I always want to do that. I need to start writing it that way. So anyway. Shatra. Uh, yeah, exactly.